Chapter Nine of Journeys to Baghdad. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anita Sloma Martinez. Journeys to Baghdad by Charles S. Brooks. Untraveling. In old literature, life was compared to a journey and wise men rejoiced to question old men because like travellers they knew the sloughs and roughnesses of the long road men arose with the sun and toddled forth as children on the day's journey of their lives and became strong to endure the heaviness of noonday they strived forward during the hours of early afternoon while their sun's ambition was hot and then as the heat cooled they reached the crest of the last hill and their road dipped gently to the valley where all roads end and on into the quiet evening until at last they lie down in that shadowed valley and await the long night this figure has lost its meaning for we now travel by rail and life is expressed in terms of the railway time-table as has been said we leave and arrive at places but we no longer travel consequently we cannot understand the hubbub that marco polo must have caused among his townsmen when he swaggered in he and his crew were bronzed by the sun were dressed as tartars and could speak their native italian with difficulty to convince the venetians of their identity marco gave a magnificent entertainment at which he and his officers received clad in oriental dress of red satin three times during the banquet they changed their dress distributing the discarded garments among their guests at last the rough tartar clothing worn on their travels was displayed and then ripped open within was a profusion of jewels of the orient the gifts of kublai khan of cathay the proof was regarded as perfect and from that time marco was acknowledged by his countrymen and loaded with distinction when drake returned from the straits of magellan and powdered and beflunkied told his lies at fashionable london dinners no doubt he was believed and his crew let loose on the beer-shops gathered each his circle of listeners drank at his admirer's expense and yarned far into the night it was worth one's while to be a traveller in those times but travelling has fallen to the yellow leaf the greatest traveller is now the brakeman next is he who sells coloured cotton a poor third pursues health and flees from restlessness wise men have ceased to question travellers except to inquire of the arrival of trains and of the comfort of hotels to-day i am a thousand miles from home from my window the world stretches massive homewards even though i stood on the most distant range of mountains and looked west still i would look on a world that contained no suggestion of home and if i leaped to that horizon and the next the result would be the same so insignificant would be the relative distance accomplished and here i am set down with no knowledge of how i came there was a continuous jar and the noise of motion we passed a barn or two i believe and on one hillside animals were frightened from their grazing as we passed there were the cluttered streets of several cities and villages there was a prodigious number of telegraph poles going in the opposite direction hell-bent as fast as we which poles considerately went at half speed through towns for fear of hitting children the united states was once an immense country and extended quite to the sunset 
for convenience we have reduced its size and made it but a map of its former self any section of this map can be unrolled and inspected in a day's time in the books for children is the story of the seven league boots wonderful boots worth a cobbler's fortune if a prince is escaping from an ogre if he is eloping with a princess if he has an engagement at the realm's frontier and the wires are down he straps these boots to his feet and strides the mountains and spans the valleys for with the clicking of the silver buckles he has destroyed the dimensions of space length breadth and depth are measured for him but in wishes one wish and perhaps a snap of the fingers or an invocation to the devil of locomotion and he stands on a mountain top the next range of hills blue in the distance another wish and another snap and he has leaped the valley wonderful boots these worth the king's ransom and this prince too as he travels thus dizzily may remember one or two barns animals frightened from their grazing and the cluttered streets nested in the valley when he reaches his journey's end he will be just as wise and just as ignorant as we who now travel by rail in magic seven-league fashion for here i am set down and all save the last half-mile of my path is lost in the curve of the mountains from my window i see the green-covered mountains so different from city streets with their horizon of buildings i fancy that on the memorable morning when aladdin's palace was set down in africa after its magic night's ride from the chinese capital a housemaid must have gone to the window thrown back the hangings and looked out astounded on the barren mountains when she expected to see only the courtyard of the palace and its swarm of chinese life she then recalled that the building rocked gently in the night and that she heard a whirling sound as of wind these were the only evidences of the devil-guided flight now she looked on a new world and the familiar pagodas lay far to the east within the eye of the rising sun there are summer evenings in my recollection when i have travelled the skies landing from the sky's blue sea upon the cloud continent and traversing its mountain ranges its inland lakes harbors and valleys over the wind-swept ridges i have gone watching the world change seeing the hungry ocean gain advantage on the kingdom of the shore and the firm soil win of the watery main increasing store with loss and loss with store the greatest traveller that i know is a little man slightly bent who walks with a stick in his garden or sits passive in his library other friends have boasted of travels in the orient of mornings spent on the athenian acropolis of visiting the theatre of dionysius and of hallooing to the empty seats that re-echoed they warned me of this in that hotel and advised me concerning the journey from london the usual tale of travellers is that athens is a ruin i have heard it rumoured for instance that the parthenon marbles are in london and that the parthenon itself has suffered from the wreckful siege of battering days that the walls to piraeus contain hardly one stone left upon another and this sets me to thinking for my friend denies all this with such an air of sincerity that i am almost inclined to believe his word against all the others the athens he pictures is not ruinous the parthenon stands before him as it left the hand of phidias 
The walls of Piraeus stand high as on that morning, now almost forgotten, when Athens awaited the Spartan attack. For him, the Dionysian theatre does not echo to tourists' shouts, but gives forth the sounds of many-voiced Greek life. He knows, too, the people of Athens. He walked one day with Socrates along the banks of the Ilissus, and afterwards visited him in his prison when about to drink the hemlock. It is of the grandeur of Athens and her sons that he speaks, not of her ruins. The best of his travels is that he buys no tickets of cork, nor indeed of any one, and when he has seen the city's sights, his wife enters and says, "'Isn't it time for the bookworm to eat?' So he has his American supper in the next room, overlooking Attica, so to speak. End of chapter 9